0: Hi, this is Ben Lola back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue with Dr. Newfeld's current series The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. Now please join me in opening your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 verses 5 to 6 with this message on spiritual bankruptcy and true riches.
1: Every once in a while, I'll hear people say that one of the greatest obstacles that Christianity faces is its continual fascination with sin and its propensity to create feelings of guilt. You know, I once spoke with a psychiatrist who told me that it was psychologically unhealthy to believe that you're a sinner. This, she said, led to a very poor self-esteem. You know, the whole concept of human rights, she told me, could not have come about had we not jettisoned the idea of sin and the idea that we don't have a right to anything. Until we realize our innate goodness, she said, we will not grasp the idea that we have rights, rights which we deserve. I responded by telling her that accepting the verdict that I am a sinner in need of grace has liberated me from pride and a constant need to defend myself. And besides, I argued, there's a great difference between being in a constant battle to defend myself and my rights and the need to love others as Christ had loved me and therefore to seek justice for them. Well, the debate continues, but for Jesus, the matter dealt with God and who would be the people belonging to a kingdom that would never pass away? To whom would the future be given? He started by identifying those who were aware of their sin, their spiritual bankruptcy before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These would inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he added, blessed are those who mourn, that is, how favored are those who are deeply moved to tears over their own rebellion against God, for they shall be comforted. Today, we're going to look at two more of the Beatitudes, or two more blessed statements. Jesus will expand on the idea that the people who are in the most favored place on earth are not only those who confess their sins and who mourn over them, but also those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's begin with a third of Jesus' Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's start with the most objectionable part of this verse. The word meek in most circumstances does not sound very attractive. Among the ancient Greeks, the term meek was actually thought of as a negative term considered a vice and not a virtue. The Greeks thought of a meek person the way we would think of a doormat. A meek person doesn't stand up for himself or herself and allows others to have their way with them. This was considered weakness. You know, what's of some interest is that if we are to understand meek in that fashion, we should know that Jesus himself was not meek. Jesus could be quite bold and forceful when need only to think of some of his classic battles with the Pharisees to see that he was hardly in a mood to give ground to any one of them. He drove money changers from the temple with a whip and confronted the Pharisees calling them brood of vipers, not when they weren't around, but rather doing it to their face. So what is meekness? Well, let's start by talking about what it's not. It's not a picture of an apathetic, lazy individual who allows others to take action while they're content to sit back. Neither is it the picture of someone who's nice all the time. When I say things this way, you might wonder if I'm performing a a clever trick here in which I am changing the natural meaning of the word. You know, several years ago, I saw a bit of graffiti in a public washroom which read, we meek will inherit the earth if that's okay with the rest of you guys. You know, I had to smile because for most of us, the meek taking over the earth because of the nature of meekness would mean that the meek would have to ask permission from the rest of us first, and we would say, no, no. But when Jesus said the meek would inherit the earth, he is, in fact, quoting from the Old Testament, to be specific, from Psalm 37. Let's read it in context, as well as the actual passage. I'm reading verses 7 to 11. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now consider the descriptions of the meek. They don't fret when evil seems to rage, that is, they don't get themselves all worked up and red in the face shouting obscenities or complaining at how wretched things have been allowed to get. Indeed, they have a settled awareness that God will act. You know, according to this psalm, they wait for the Lord. Now, in giving a synonym, some people use the word gentle, blessed are the gentle. Well, that gets at part of it, but something is still missing, for the word gentle doesn't fully explain what Jesus had in mind. Uh, In order to understand what Jesus meant, we do well to understand meekness in the context of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are nine statements of blessing at the beginning of Jesus' sermon. They're not descriptions of nine different kinds of people. Rather, all nine are a description of the same person, and all nine follow a pattern. So, the poor of spirit are those who confess their innate unworthiness of the kingdom and of their own sinfulness. Next, those who mourn have looked deeply into their own sinfulness and have been deeply grieved. That follows logically. So then, how does meekness follow these two? Answer, the meek person is the individual who, having seen his or her unworthiness before God, does not act in arrogance towards others. A number of Bible teachers have put a group of words together, like gentleness and humility, not given to a hypersensitivity towards the insults or slanders of others, an individual who does not put himself or herself at the center of everything. See, that doesn't make the meek person a doormat. As we've seen from Psalm 37, the meek person is not at peace with wickedness nor wicked people. But the meek person, having substituted himself or herself to be the center and putting God at the center, will take his or her stand on the principles of God's glory and his honor. She or he will wait for the Lord, and so the meek person might not spend much energy defending himself or herself, but would stand up for injustice. And it is exactly that which we have in Jesus." Although Jesus had no spiritual bankruptcy in that he had never sinned, Paul in Philippians 2 tells us that although Jesus always existed in the form of God, yet in his incarnation, that is, when he became a man, he did not count equality with God as a prize to be seized and made much of. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on the cross, and that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. His followers— The citizens of his eternal kingdom will be made up of men and women who, even though they belong to an eternal kingdom, do not grasp a hold of that as a position of status, but are willing to humble themselves in obedience to the will of God, even if it means suffering and death. And, says Jesus, these are the people who will inherit the earth. By now, that statement should not surprise us. After all, that's precisely what the kingdom of heaven does. The kingdom of this earth will fall into ruin, and the kingdom of heaven will stand for all time. That's why the citizens of the kingdom, and that includes the meek, will reign. Now let's stop for a moment and make this personal. William Carey has often been called the father of modern missions. He organized the London Missionary Society in 1795, and he actually translated the Bible into 40 different languages and inspired countless missionaries to bring the gospel all around the world. His ministry in India is legendary. His life indicates an amazing story of one life that is submitted to God and what that life can accomplish. But on one occasion, he was sitting at a table in which a British general had made a comment to a Lord Hastings sitting at that table that all that William Carey really was was just a shoemaker, for that had been Carey's trade. Not a man of high standing, just a shoemaker. Carey overheard the conversation and he interjected. He didn't say, well, sir, I don't think you've accomplished what I have. Rather, he corrected the general and told him that he was wrong. He had not been a shoemaker. No, sir. He said, I was only a cobbler. He meant he didn't make shoes. He only fixed them. He was less than the general had imagined. See, how about you? Are you sensitive to slights, to insults, and you project the image that no one will ever take advantage of you? Jesus said, blessed are the meek. When someone tells you you're a sinner, Your response should be, wow, you don't even know the half of it yet. I'm a great deal worse than you can ever imagine. The kingdom of heaven, however, so overwhelms my thinking that it has my attention and all my loyalty is directed there. More when we come back.
0: As we look at Matthew 5, 5, and 6, the Beatitudes show us that those who belong to God's kingdom are the meek. Well, this word doesn't typically conjure up positive meanings for most of us, Dr. Newfeld has helped us to better understand what Jesus was really saying when he talked about those who are meek in spirit. For meekness naturally flows out of our acknowledgement that we are spiritually bankrupt and not deserving of God's goodness. When we come back, we'll learn what Jesus meant about those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. Our efforts have helped transform the lives of thousands of Canadians from coast to coast to coast. In this new year, perhaps you'd consider joining our ministry team as a monthly partner. Our monthly donor program, the 1119 Fellowship, provides sustainable support to all the Bible teaching and engagement ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Consider how you might invest in these efforts as people of all ages and stages of life open their lives up to discover more about Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Your partnership in 2021 will provide the opportunity to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Fellowship Program, the benefits of joining, and to become a member, visit backtothebible.ca slash Fellowship, or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.
1: Reading Matthew 5 or 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is that which is in complete conformity with God's will. There's something so significant here that I, I fear we might miss it and quickly read on. Did you notice what Jesus did not say? He did not say, blessed are the righteous. That's already been ruled out. Those who teach that Jesus in his sermon is teaching salvation by works aren't paying attention. There is no one righteous. There are only those who acknowledge their own unrighteousness, who are grieved by it, and who act in meekness in accordance to that, and those who don't do those things. was martin lloyd jones in his uh, studies on the sermon on the mount that said the trouble with mankind is not any one particular manifestation of sin but rather sin itself if you're anxious about the state of the world and the threat of possible wars then i assure you that the most direct way of avoiding such calamities is to observe words such as these he was referring to those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness now i hope you catch what he was saying There's a vast difference between those people who complain about the world and those people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, we've all done it, haven't we? We have perhaps sat down in a coffee shop, few friends maybe, solved all of the world's problems in one afternoon. We started with the ignorance of some of the politicians that are serving us, the rising debt problem in our nation, the problems with parliamentary democracy, and whether the police are properly accountable to an independent agency representing the people. Well, we've all wanted the world to be better. And if we're not careful, you might say, we're hungry and thirsting after righteousness. You know, and in some way, I guess we are. After all, a part of being in the image of God is to have a sense of oughtness. That some things ought to be and some things ought not to be. See, to be human is in some sense to hunger for justice and for that which is right and moral and good. But since all of the Beatitudes follow a logical progression of thought, we might assume at least four things are intended. Here they are. First, to hunger and thirst after righteousness must first be personally applied. If I have come to recognize my own spiritual poverty, have deeply mourned over it, and have become meek in the sense that I no longer make excuses for myself or defend myself, then to hunger and thirst after righteousness must mean that I hunger and thirst for it in my own life first. It means I am profoundly dissatisfied to allow sin to remain in me, as long as I see lust in me, anger feelings of revenge, greed, selfishness, idolatry, deception, jealousy, and so much more. In me, I'm, I'm going to need to cry out to God, oh, how I hunger for these things to be put to death. I long for your righteousness. See, it's of no avail whatsoever to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the world and to point it out when we so easily excuse it in ourselves. Second, To hunger and thirst after righteousness leads me ultimately to the cross and to the gospel. In Romans 1 verse 17, Paul will say that in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, of course, as the rest of the New Testament plays out, we learn of God's righteousness being portrayed in the cross of Jesus, a righteousness that is credited to our account. Bible teachers have called this an alien righteousness, meaning that it it didn't originate in me, but rather that it belongs to God, but he has graciously granted to me as I put my faith in Christ and in his gospel. So ultimately, Jesus' teaching will lead us to hunger and thirst for more of the gospel. Now third, to hunger and thirst after righteousness does mean that I care deeply about righteousness in the world around me. Christians, because we're Christians, have to care about the poor, about racism, about fairness, in which equal opportunities are given to all. We care about things like health care and bringing of relief to suffering. We hunger for an end to abortions. It's no accident that wherever the gospel has gone, hospitals and schools and matters of correcting injustice have always followed. But here I want to draw a distinction between politics and righteousness. Look, I'm not naive. I I know that righteousness in society requires that there are matters that have to be put into policies and that political structures are necessary. But whereas honest Christians might disagree as to which policies are required, we cannot disagree about the final goal. We long for, indeed, we hunger and thirst for the day in which the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We long for a day when children are valued, when murder comes to an end, when injustice is overthrown, when the knowledge of Christ and his gospel simply pervades every structure. Now, I've said that when we hunger and thirst after righteousness, first, we do so in ourselves, and second, we do so in the gospel, third, we do so in culture and in society as a whole, and fourth, we do so as we long for the second coming of Jesus. Every person who hungers after righteousness will also say, even so, come Lord Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is about the announcement that the kingdom of heaven has already broken into the present era. But that's not sufficient. We long for the day when Christ returns. Indeed, because we hunger and thirst for this, it means we simply cannot be satisfied with whatever righteous advances are made in this present era. I want to see Christ. I want the heavens to part and the Son of Man to be revealed. I want Him as the ruler of the earth. Now, I'm quite sure that all four of these things are intended in this longing for righteousness. But something needs to be added. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now I'm afraid that the idea of hungering and thirsting are largely lost on North Americans. When my father and mother were alive, they told me about the years of starvation they had endured when they lived in the Ukraine. Those of you who know your history will know that Joseph Stalin had enacted a policy of deliberately starving the Ukraine for political reasons. And so my parents and my grandparents living in a land of rich farmland which promised a yearly bumper crop were forbidden to the point of death from eating from the abundance of the land that God had blessed. My father's own brother died of malnutrition. My mother told me that when they fled to Russia and to the West, she remembers the feeling of walking and her hunger-swollen legs were rubbing against one another. See, when you hunger for food— Whether you wake or sleep, your mind is engaged in the thought of food. You ache with longing just to eat. All other interests are crowded out. That's your only desire. You know, I can only imagine the crushing weight that was on my grandparents as they looked at their young children's hungry eyes and knew they could not meet their need. You know, and as I grew up and as we ate meals together as a family, it was not a few times when my parents recounted the hunger years and the gratefulness that they would feel at the abundance they had right now. They told me they had dreamt about what God had now given them. And when Jesus spoke of hungry and thirsting, he meant it in just that kind of a way. Righteousness is not just something we add on to the other interests that we have in life. Everything is reduced to this one thing. All other interests in life, all other pursuits are eclipsed against a desire that simply occupies us. We long for the kingdom to come. We long for Christ to be revealed. We long for the evil in this world to finally and ultimately be done away with. And we ache like a starving man or a woman for the sin in our own lives to be put to death so that we with our whole body will live and breathe and exist to the glory of the God who has loved us. Jesus said of those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, that the longing in our souls that consumes us and causes us to ache will not have been in vain. Like my parents who would stare in awe at the table before them, overflowing with rich food in this country, so too we will be satisfied. The day will surely come when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. See, when I reflect on the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm struck by how different the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to those whose hope is wrapped up in the kingdoms of this earth. To those whose hope is now, there is a kind of joy. Because they aren't filled with grief over their own spiritual bankruptcy, they never feel the kind of hunger that the citizens of the kingdom experience. But for those who are so aware of their spiritual poverty that it has made them meek, and one day the situation will be reversed, The kingdoms of this earth will collapse, and the kingdom of heaven will be established. And then the longing in our soul will be fulfilled. That is Christ's promise to us.
0: Thanks so much, John. A great message. And I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, this is just not a passage to be read, but it needs to be studied because Jesus just turns things upside down on us, doesn't he?
1: Yeah, I think the more we read Jesus and the more we become familiar with his words, the more we should learn to read him more slowly the next time through. And then we continue to read them more slowly and then just stop. And that's what meditation really is. It's, it's kind of like a cow chewing its cud. You know, it kind of, you know, it's got this stomach and now it comes again and it chews the thing. And it, you know, it just over and over the same thing. And eventually new meanings will come to us that were really there in Christ in the first place. So we're not inventing stuff. This is really in tune with everything that Jesus taught. And then when we come to this whole hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then both you and I will recognize that it's so much easier to hunger and thirst for it in others than to do so in ourselves. And he does teach us that.
0: I hope that this message has impacted you as we reflect on our own status as citizens of God's kingdom. Don't miss tomorrow's program as we'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 7 to 9 on the topic of giving and receiving grace with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Last year, our team began to examine how effectively Back to the Bible Canada was fulfilling its mission of Bible teaching. One outcome of those conversations was a new statement that better reflected our core calling, Bible teaching you can trust. Another outcome was an increased effort to ensure the maximum number of people were being reached, gaining a better understanding of God, the Bible, and growing in their walk with Jesus. These efforts have produced fruit as evidenced in these gracious words from Shannon. My spiritual walk has never been the same, And the teaching of Dr. Neufeld has opened up scripture for me in a way that I have longed for for years, but until now have never experienced. Thank you for the role your prayers and support play in making this ministry possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.